1 Corinthians chapter 14. Paul shifts gears a little bit where we come this morning. By the way, if you're here and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands so that we can hear the Word of God and read it as well. He shifts gears a little bit when we come to verse 26. By the way, last week you all received um, uh, three uh, units uh, for... Verse 26. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation, that all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church. And let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you all can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Or did the word of God come originally from you, or was it to you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Paul says, you want to fight with me? I'm not going to fight with you over these issues. Um, Try to relieve them of their ignorance, but not everyone's willing to do that. And therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy And do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. We thank you for the obviously large things that you are interested in building into our lives. The things that have to do with salvation, that have to do with your Son, that have to do with eternity. But we're also thankful, Lord, for these passages that build into our lives more obscure truths but are equally important in making a disciple of yours. And so we pray that you would take these words, God breathed, breathed by your Holy Spirit to the Apostle, and that you would breathe them into our lives, Lord, and make them a part of our relationship with you and our understanding of Christianity and our understanding of the local church. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The title of this series 
of studies through 1 Corinthians is Christian living in a pagan world. And someone might wonder what in the world this passage that we've just read uh, that communicates that church services are to be conducted decently and in order, what in the world does that have to do with the theme Christian living in a pagan world? It really does have an application, though, for the simple reason that the more pagan and the more hostile to Christianity a culture is, the more the Christians in that culture need their church services or our worship services to be deeply spiritual and very much edifying. The world that we live in, we go against the stream of the world all day, every day. We're fighting, against, we're fighting a battle in the world that we live in. We are not home yet. Heaven is home. We've sung about it today. Uh, this is the path to home. And so in the middle of that battle, we need a refuge. We need a place that we can come to to be built up spiritually, something that isn't a hybrid of the world and the church, but something that is distinctively and strongly Christian and strongly uh, biblical and deeply spiritual. In fact, the strength with which the culture uh, we live in, in terms of its opposing God and Christianity and righteousness and holy living, uh, the more the culture becomes like that as Christians, the more we need our church services and our gatherings to be just as strong in the opposite direction. And we're going to see the need for that more and more because we know the world is going to become more and more hostile to God. You say, I don't see how it can uh, occur, but it can occur and it will occur. God said that uh, by the time, just before the time of the rapture of the church, Jesus' return for the church, it'll be as the times of Noah. I didn't watch the movie, so I don't know uh, how they portrayed all of that. It's worse in the Bible, but that's the way that it's going to be. And so the culture is going to become more and more like that. In some parts of the world, it's already in the redlining in that uh, direction. And as a result, our church services are going to be, need to be something that are deeply spiritual, something that really helps us to be strong and to build us up in our walk with the Lord and, and equipping us as Christians. And in this regard, the church at Corinth was failing terribly. And throughout the entire epistle, we see over and over again where they are simply not influencing the culture around them, but the culture was influencing them. They were not maintaining a Christian distinctive, not only within the culture, they were not maintaining a Christian distinctive even within their meetings and within their gatherings and in their personal relationships with uh, the Lord. And that same uh, failure to uh, stand against the culture, to resist the culture, and uh, not allow ourselves to be influenced by the culture, but to allow the culture now to dominate uh, our lives, to dominate uh, a particular church, 
that kind of mistake is being made not only by the church at Corinth 2,000 years ago, but is being made by some even today, where as the culture becomes more and more bold in its opposition uh, to Christianity and of Christians, uh, sometimes churches will decide that the best thing to do is just to dumb everything down and uh, weaken the spiritual strength and the spiritual content of their church services. And that is a disastrous decision, but it's very, very common today, been a common trend for the last I would say at least 10 or 15 years. Now, I think that like never before in our nation's history as Christians, we really need to understand what is the church supposed to be? What is a church service supposed to be? Uh, It is supposed to be, the church is supposed to be the pillar, the Bible says, of and ground of truth. It is to be spiritually strong. It is to be spiritually very faithful to the Lord and very, very committed and immovable. The Bible says that we are not to be conformed to this world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's us individually. No church is to be transformed by the world. And that was happening at Corinth. But having said that, it's also important to realize that within the body of Christ and within the fellowship of Christian churches within a community and within the body of Christ as a whole worldwide, there is tremendous room for diversity among different churches. There are certain things that ought to characterize every single church in this community. Anything that is identifying itself with Jesus Christ, there are certain things that are to identify to mark and to characterize every single Christian in the world. We'll talk about those in just a moment. But every local individual church is going to have its own personality. It's going to have its own style in terms of its worship, in terms of its distinctives, in terms of its emphases. Uh, Some churches are highly liturgical Christian churches, and some of them are uh, represented within our community as well. A highly liturgical church is known as a high church, and uh, sometimes they're affectionately known as uh, smells and bells churches. And uh, they really do resist modernization in a big way. So their church services are... Uh, exactly the same as they have been conducted for hundreds of years. And so the incense, the robes, the vestments, the kneeling, the standing, the sitting, the reciting of uh, written prayers, no extemporaneous prayers, and, and so forth. Then you have on the other end of the spectrum, you have what are known as low churches, where there's very few of the trappings of a, uh, of a high church. The services are simpler and they're less formal. We would be considered a low church. Um, I remember the first time uh, somebody referred to us as that. I was a new pastor in town. And um, I was attending a pastor's meeting. It was a luncheon. I got in line, a whole group of pastors, uh, dozens and dozens of us. 
And uh, there was this buffet where we were going up and getting something to eat. And I was in line. And I said hi to the guy in front of me. And he said, uh, oh, where, uh, what church do you pastor? I said, I pastor Calvary Chapel. He said, oh, a low church, and turned around. <laughs> I thought, man, I mean, we know we're nothing, but I mean, you don't have to poke us in the eye over it. I didn't know, you know, that that was kind of like a theological term for things. I felt bad when I hit him. Then you've got Pentecostal churches which are more freewheeling in their worship and in the expression of their emotions toward God. And then you have those churches that are more conservative in their worship services. And sometimes they're affectionately known as uh, the frozen chosen. But you've got a lot of different kinds of churches. And there are almost as many kinds of churches as there are different kinds of people, which is exactly the point. Um, And each kind of church, as long as they're faithful to the Scriptures, uh, they're okay. And God can be worshipped in many, many different styles. And that diversity is necessary. Some people individually are very, very big on tradition. So they're uncomfortable with change. They like things to remain the same, and they, uh, they want their, uh, the church service to be exactly the same every single week, and the same scriptures get read in a series all the way through the calendar year, and it's the same prayers, and the incense is lit at the same moment in, in, in every service and so forth, and all of it going on just as it has been for hundreds of years, and it gives that kind of person a sense of security, and that's what uh, is a deep need in their life, is to know the whole world around me is changing, it's changing so quickly, I want to be a part of something that has, uh, you know, roots and history that go back uh, hundreds of years, and so they, that kind of person will be drawn to a uh, heavily liturgical church. Then you have other people who want and need the exact opposite. They want a highly emotional experience with God. And so when they go to church, they want to go to a church where there's no telling what's going to happen next. We don't know what that pastor is going to do or what is going to happen in the service. And there's that kind of Um, uncertainty that as much as the other person hates uncertainty in their relationship and worship of God, this other person craves it and longs for it. And so they're drawn to more charismatic and Pentecostal churches. And then still others, they're very conservative people. They're conservative and uh, they might be personally uncomfortable with too much of a display of emotion. They may have a very emotional relationship with God, but outwardly they're not uncomfortable with a lot of emotion going on around them and all, even in the in expression of worship uh, for the to the Lord. And so they'll find themselves a little more comfortable in a conservative church, and that's where they'll gravitate to to attend. And all of that's great, and that's one of the reasons that God doesn't, you know. Uh, obtain 50 acres of property in the middle of a town like Modesto 
put a big building in the middle of it and then pave out in all directions to accommodate every Christian in the city coming uh, to that church. Uh, He could do that, but he hasn't done that. There's lots and lots of churches in the city of Modesto. I remember when um, Karen and I moved here with our uh, family in uh, 1985, and we received a package from the welcome wagon, and they had a a listing of churches within the community. And there were 130 churches at that time uh, already in the community. And I said, Lord, like they need 131? I mean, what in the world are we doing, you know? So, but somehow there was some little place that we had in the, in the big picture. And so no single church is right for everybody. And so... God births these churches, and uh, while no one church is right for everyone, each one is right for someone or for some group of people. My prayer for us as a community, I hope I've never uh, through the years, certainly not more recent years in any kind of way, wave a banner that says we're better than everybody else or we're better than anyone else. We know who and what we are as a church, and we know why we are what we are and why we do what we do, which I'll get to in just a moment, but I never want to have this idea that we're the best or we're the greatest or these people are wrong for going over to this church. Of course, that would be be, uh, silly. And my prayer is that the Lord would bless Modesto with absolutely the best of each of these kind of churches that he would bless us as a community with just the strongest and the most biblical and the most spiritually vibrant uh, Lutheran churches and Presbyterian uh, churches and Pentecostal churches and Baptist churches and denominational churches and non-denominational churches so that the whole body of Christ can find a home in this community and be built up uh, spiritually. Well, as I said, that then raises the question of why are our church services the way that they are here at Calvary Chapel in Modesto, and why do we operate the church as a whole the way that we do? Why do we emphasize what we emphasize, and uh, why, where does our vision come from? And the answer to that question, uh, in order to answer that question, we need to know what a church is supposed to be, what it's supposed to be aiming at. A lot of times people don't understand what a church is, why they exist, what are they aiming at, what's the purpose uh, for a church. And we learn that from the highest source available from Jesus himself. And Jesus speaking to uh, the disciples following his resurrection and prior to his ascension into heaven, he gave them what was known as the Great Commission. And we can put that up, Matthew chapter 28, up on the, pass, on the board here. So, wow, who's that gray guy? There we go. Okay. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That's important, those two words, make disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. That is known as the Great Commission. In the minds of a lot of Christians, the Great Commission, the idea is to go out and make converts of every nation. But that's not what is in the passage. Jesus said, go forth and make disciples of every nation. So what are disciples? Disciples are just mature followers of Jesus. And maturity being defined, uh, physical maturity is defined in the ability to uh, reproduce ourselves physically. Spiritual maturity is defined in the same way, where we have the ability to reproduce ourselves spiritually. We know how to uh, we know what the gospel is. We know how to share the gospel with another person. We know how to lead them into a relationship with the Lord. And then we know how to disciple them now in their personal relationship with the Lord. And so that's what a disciple is able to do. And that's, uh, that's what we're, uh, we're aiming at. The end product, so to speak, that God wants coming out of a church are solid, mature Christians who can then disciple others. So we're not aiming at amusing people or entertaining people or keeping people from uh, falling asleep because they're too carnal to have any interest in the Bible. We don't have an interest in trying to grow a big church or uh, to keep people comfortable spiritually and, and until, you know, they go to heaven one day. But the focus of the church is to produce strong, mature Christians who can lead others to Christ, disciple them in a relationship with the Lord, who can stand victoriously and strongly against whatever influence that the world might have to pull us away from the Lord or uh, and, and to live victoriously for the Lord in whatever age in human history God has called us uh, to be a witness for him. Well, that then raises the next question. How in the world do we do that? How do we make disciples? Do we uh, form committees and then come up with a bunch of ideas on how to make disciples and produce spiritual uh, spiritually mature people. No, the Bible tells us exactly how we're to make disciples. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit uh, came upon 120 disciples who were in an upper room in Jerusalem waiting for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the sound of a great wind filled the room. The Holy Spirit came upon those disciples that began speaking in tongues. All of this attracted a tremendous crowd to see what in the world is happening in all of this. And uh, Jerusalem filled with pilgrims there to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. The crowd that gathered outside of that building where the upper room was, they numbered in the thousands. And then Peter, he stood up and he preached the gospel message to them and called on them to put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, to begin a relationship uh, with God. And uh, as they, uh, he did so, 3,000 people responded and were born again. So now you have in the early church, you have a great commission given by Jesus. The gospel's been put out. You've got 3,000 people who are brand new Christians, 3,000 converts, 
But Jesus called the disciples, calls us to make disciples of all nations. So how do you take them from being converted or brand new Christians into maturity? And uh, that was the question that they were facing in Acts chapter 2. And Acts chapter 2 verse 42 gives us their answer. And it tells us that they continued steadfastly in, number one, the apostles' doctrine, number two, in fellowship, number three, in the breaking of bread, and number four, in prayers. Those are the four things that are listed in Acts 2.42 for the making of a disciple and by continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the teaching of the Word of God. And then not only the teaching of the Word of God, but making sure that everything that we do here in the church is uh, directed by the Word. All that we, all of our doctrine, all of our practice comes out of the Word of God. Then the importance of fellowship, relationship, to provide a, a spiritual environment where when we fall and we skin our knees or we chip a tooth or uh, whatever kind of way we get banged up in the world and we need to be built up and we need a, a grace environment in order to be encouraged to continue on in our relationship and, and to grow spiritually, iron sharpening iron, lots of opportunities to develop relationship and fellowship uh, with one another. The breaking of bread, which is the Lord's Supper, and the partaking of the Lord's Supper is God's way of keeping the main thing, the main thing in a church. You know, Jesus can get forgotten in a church. Jesus, it's almost hard to believe, but it can happen. And the Lord's Supper, which we partake of on Sunday night, the second Sunday night uh, of each month, that keeps the main thing, the main thing in our church. The themes that surround uh, the cross of Calvary, God's love, God's grace, the importance of uh, salvation and redemption and forgiveness and uh, the fact that he's returning again. And then the importance, he says, in Acts 2.42 related to prayer and the importance of prayer in making a strong disciple. In Acts chapter 2, there's actually there's the four things listed in that one verse, verse 42, but there's three other things that are listed in the chapter, but they occur previously that are important to making disciples. To me, the list isn't four. It's a list of seven. Earlier in the chapter, there, Peter preached the gospel to the lost, so the importance of evangelism for a local church. Uh, if you don't have evangelism, if people aren't getting saved, if they're not being converted, then you don't have anyone to make disciples of. Earlier in that chapter, too, there was... The water baptism is mentioned. That's an important part of making disciples. And we have a water baptism coming up a week from tomorrow night. And then also in that chapter is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And that's the seven-point grid that we run everything through that we do in this church. We say, does it do one of these things? And if it doesn't do one or more of those things, then it isn't vital to making a disciple and so we don't invest our time and our energies into it. Now, there is a, a line that can sometimes get crossed uh, concerning how a worship service is to function that 
the church then moves beyond uh, what is legitimate in terms of a biblical expression of worship to the Lord, and it crosses into something that really dishonors the Lord and it misrepresents the Lord, and it makes the worship service unedifying to the people that are there. It's not a blessing uh, to them. And the church at Corinth had crossed that line in very, very significant ways, and Paul was forced to correct them, which is what uh, he did. And his correction here, the passage we've read, is invaluable to us because it provides us with two great principles, this passage does, that are to govern our worship services. Notice in verse 33, Paul wrote, "'For God is not the author of confusion,' but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, this tells us a number of things. Anybody else have allergies? Anybody not have allergies? (laughs) So this tells us a number of things. When a worship service is under the control of the Holy Spirit, It will not be marked by confusion. Why? Because Paul tells us that he is not the author of confusion. The word confusion means insurrection in the original language. It means commotion. It means tumult. It means riot. It means chaotic. Now remember that the Holy Spirit will never do Anything that isn't consistent with the life and the nature of Jesus. He will never, ever uh, do that. And we look at Jesus in the Gospels, we see his life, and if we see something happening in a church service that's being ascribed to the Holy Spirit, and yet it doesn't look like Christ at all, then we have uh, good reason to doubt that that is a legitimate work uh, of the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite names, as most of you are aware of, for the Holy Spirit in the Bible is the Spirit of Christ. And I like that because that name reassures us that the Holy Spirit is safe. He will never do anything that does not look like the Jesus that we know in the Gospels. The second thing that this verse 33 teaches us is that when a worship service is under the control of the Holy Spirit, it's going to be marked by peace because God is the author of peace. And Paul tells us that this is what his presence will look like in any church, not only in the church at Corinth. So it's not going to be marked by confusion, but it's going to be marked by peace. And this is to characterize every church that says we identify with the God of the Bible and with the Lord Jesus. So no matter where we would go and attend church, no matter what the cultural differences are uh, on one side of the world versus another side of the world, those services are never to be marked by confusion but always by peace. Otherwise, a line has been crossed that now uh, things are not biblical and, uh, and in need of the correction that 
Paul gives here in this passage. The second important principle that is laid out here for our services is in verse 40. Paul wrote, Let all things be done decently and in order. So this tells us two very important things. And it has something important to say to Christians on uh, both extremes of uh, worship experience. To the more conservative Christian, uh, that verse, the key part of that verse is, let all things be done. Let all things be done. There's a cons- I'm a very conservative person by nature. And uh, that, pa- that part of the passage, uh, I'm not completely conservative, but that part of the passage always speaks to me as a pastor and as a leader of this church. Let all things be done. And that's what that group or that more conservative Christian needs to be careful of. Otherwise, they're going to suffocate all the life within a church and uh, remove every element of the supernatural from their worship services. They will go into an error that is just as great as Corinthian error on the other extreme. To the more adventurous Christian um, and Christian church, there is that exhortation, let all things be done, and then here's the key for them, decently and in order. And the word decently means fittingly or properly or becomingly. Look like Christ. And in order means in an orderly manner. So worship service is to have some structure. There are those that are to be in authority related to overseeing uh, the particular meeting. And they have the responsibility of making sure that the service is run decently and in order. And that authority that has been given to them is to be respected and it's to be submitted to. Now, the specific violations of these principles in the church at Corinth, Paul instructs them. Now, they're violating both of those principles in spades. And so now he speaks to their violation of those principles and he instructs them concerning how to bring their worship service in line with them. Now remember, this entire chapter is written concerning the public assembly, concerning a church service. It's not talking about home fellowships where everybody's a Christian and everybody's in agreement related to uh, various uh, uh, aspects of uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit and lots of other things too. This is where you open up the doors Like on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening here, you open the doors up of the church and anyone and everyone can come in. Even a dog. We have a dog here this morning. I don't know what he's getting out of it. Hopefully you're getting more out of it than he's getting out of it. But uh, you open up the doors and uh, anybody can come in. Christians come in. People who are not yet Christians come in. People who are seekers, they come in. So this is all talking about that kind of a context. He speaks to them, number one, in verse, verses 26 to 33 there, and from the, the chaos and the lack of order that marked their services, he addressed that. Clearly from verse 26, you can tell that their services were a free-for-all. Sometimes people read verse 26 and they say, Paul is commending all of this 
kind of activity. Now, he isn't commending it. That's why he spends the next few verses correcting it and bringing it in line in a way that makes it edifying for people decently and in order. So it's, the, their services were kind of a free-for-all. People are speaking over the top of one another. They're interrupting one another. So a general lack of order. And Paul's solution, all things were being done at that church, but they weren't being done decently in an order. So he says concerning the gift of tongues in verses 27 and 28, he said, in the public assembly, a service like this, he said, Two or at the most three people were to speak, could speak in their prayer language, and only if God gave them the interpretation uh, of the tongue or gave the interpretation of the prayer language to someone, an interpreter he speaks of in verse 27. If there is no interpretation for the tongue, then the person who desires to speak in their prayer language it was not to do so publicly, but to speak it privately between them and God. So if somebody feels in a service, oh, um, I believe God wants me to speak in tongues, but God does not give anyone the interpretation of that tongue, then that is the Holy Spirit's way of communicating, no, I am not wanting the gift of tongues to be expressed because I am not giving an interpretation to that tongue. What you're feeling, what you're experiencing in terms of your prayer language is to be expressed privately between you and God. And so that's what, without an interpretation, that's what the Holy Spirit is uh, up to. Um, And all of this speaks to the fact that a Christian can and should exercise self-control in this area of the Christian life. No Christian is to ever violate this instruction and then blame it on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was on me just so strongly. I couldn't help it. I was going to grieve or quench the Holy Spirit in my life. I just had to shout out in tongues. No. As he's going to speak about prophets in a moment, the prophet, the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophets. We maintain control of our lives, and when we go out of control or out of self-discipline and then blame it on the Holy Spirit, we're blaming it uh, on him, and he's not responsible for it at all. A person can speak in tongues if they have the gift, And they can just as easily refrain from speaking in tongues. Prophets can do the same thing. And so we see here that there's never to be any speaking of tongues in a public uh, church service without an interpretation uh, of the tongue. And this also speaks to not allowing the whole church. It's interesting, Paul here speaking to this church, he says, no, there's not to be a corporate Uh, uh, speaking in tongues, where the whole church speaks at tongues in this moment in the service. There's only to be two or at the most three, and that with an interpretation. He sets some very strict boundaries upon it. Because tongues is important. Spiritual gifts are important. Whatever the gift is that God might give us. But it's not to be the focus of a Christian church. It's not to be the focus of our gathering 
or uh, the focus of our uh, Christian relationship. It's an important thing, but it's not the main thing. And pretty soon you can end up with the services that it's just like, okay, who's going to speak in tongues? When is this? And And it becomes a gift focus and even a tongues focus rather than a God focus, and that is to be uh, avoided. Now, again, you have um, Paul speaking about carefully handling the gift of tongues, and he gave the reason in verse 23, because uh, if non-Christians come into the church and they're in the part of the service and they hear that kind of thing, they're going to think that you're out of your mind. The order of a service is never to be interrupted by uh, the gift of tongues, having someone shout out in the gift of tongues. And that happens frequently in some churches where uh, someone is teaching and then their teaching is interrupted. Usually they're building to a point and everybody's getting the point and the Spirit of God is working related to that point. And then someone is feeling it and then they will stand up and they will speak out in tongues. And the teaching is then interrupted. But The Bible teaches that when the pastor is teaching, the gift of uh, teaching is in operation. And so the Holy Spirit isn't going to interrupt one gift by using another gift. He's not going to interrupt himself through the gift of, uh, interrupt the gift of teaching with a gift of, uh, of tongues. Now, he gives instruction here concerning their abuse of the gift of prophecy, verses 29 to 32. Tells us in verse 29 it's to be limited to two or three messages per meeting where somebody, a prophet would stand up or someone with a gift of prophecy. They would then deliver a prophecy in a public worship service. It was to happen two times at the most three times. Tells us in verse 29 the prophecies were then to be judged by the Word of God and then presumably by leadership within the church who have the gift of uh, discerning of spirits and uh, listening to it. He tells us that, verse 30, it's to be done in turn. Uh, The prophets were not to interrupt uh, one another. And then again, verse 32, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, they can exercise self-control in the exercise of this gift. And I think that that whole aspect of self-control is... Uh, very uh, important. And I think it helps a certain kind of person to relax related to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's not like you're going to go to Rayleigh's and the, um, uh, at the checkout counter and the person says, is there anything else that you want? And you say, yes, I'd like a plastic comb, some chiclets, and then all of a sudden you're heading into a prophecy or you're speaking the gift of tongues. Some people have the idea that it's that out of control. It isn't that out of control. And uh, we have uh, maintained control of ourselves, and the gifts can be, are to be operated from the vantage point of, of self-control. Now, someone might wonder why we don't exercise the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy during our public worship services, or we don't really, you know, give a, a point uh, to that on the Sunday morning or the Sunday evening. And the reason that we don't do that, one of the reasons is just the size of the group. If someone stands up and gives a prophecy in a room like this, 
or they stand up and they speak in tongues and it's out of order. Now I got to fix that. And and it's bad in two ways. Not that I got to fix it, but number one, it's everything gets interrupted. Everybody leaves not thinking about. Uh, worshiping the Lord in song, worshiping Him in the study of the Word, and what did we learn there today? But ends up walking away. And what did you think about that? And what did you think on this? You know. And so, um, and and so, if somebody does something out of order or it's wrong, and I have to correct it, then that's not a pleasant experience for the body. But I also have a heart of compassion toward people as they're growing in this area of their Christian life, growing in spiritual gifts. And if somebody stands up and they're new to these things and they give out a prophecy that the Lord's coming in October or, you know, something that's just obviously wrong or they speak out in tongues and there's no interpreter and I have to address it publicly, then... um, they kind of get shot down in front of hundreds of people. And that can, that can hurt their willingness to be open to the gifts of the Holy Spirit for the rest of their lives. It can just absolutely kill their confidence and growth in that area. And sometimes as we're growing in the gifts of the Holy Spirit... We do make mistakes, and we do learn from those mistakes. And it's best not to have that learning experience sometimes be in front of several hundred uh, people. So we have afterglow meetings. We have believer meetings for waiting on the Lord and the exercise of spiritual gifts. So we can hear the Lord speak through the gifts of the Holy Spirit um, because they are believers' meetings and they are not public assemblies. We're not under the restriction here related to two or at the most three prophecies or any other restrictions. It's a believer's meeting. It's all Christians that are at that meeting. We also have uh, not only the afterglows, which are uh, great for growing in our spiritual gifts, um, but we have smaller meetings and home fellowships, prayer meetings that are probably the ideal place to learn about and, and grow in this area of the Christian life, spiritual gifts. The home fellowship is just a few people, you know, and everybody knows each other well. And you head into a time of prayer. The uh, man that is, brother that's leading that meeting, he has a sense that, okay, we've lifted up uh, the uh, prayer to the Lord, but I have a sense that the Lord might want to do something here right now. And so he allows... He allows the meeting to breathe a little bit, and then pretty soon someone is sharing a passage from the Word of God, or they have a prophecy that they give, or there might be an interpreta- a tongue with an interpretation, or any word of wisdom, word of knowledge. And, and then if somebody goofs up and they go a little bit sideways, it's easy to clean in a, in a small environment like that. Nobody gets hurt. It's just a lesson learned, and we keep on growing in our relationship with the Lord and in, in that particular area. Same thing with prayer meetings. It's the easiest thing in the world to come together for prayer. 
and to lift up the focused things that we're coming together to pray about, but then to again leave room and watch does the Holy Spirit want to speak to us now in this meeting through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And of course, those that lead the prayer meetings and lead the home fellowships in this church, they are uh, have absolute freedom to just be directed by the Holy Spirit in all of those uh, all of those areas. Now, in terms of addressing violations, and I close with this, in verses 34 and 35, he instructs them concerning the conduct of some of the women uh, at the, in the church at Corinth uh, during the worship services. And so he said in verse 34, let your women keep silent uh, in the churches. So I think that's clear enough. And uh, really, there's not any real need to elaborate related to that. That's a, clear as a bell. Don't anybody prophesy right now. Just kidding. So Paul is addressing a very specific abuse um, that was occurring in the church at Corinth. And it wasn't happening in other churches. He doesn't address it anywhere else. So it's a local situation that's happening in that place. He doesn't write to the Ephesians. He doesn't write uh, to the Philippians. He doesn't write to the churches in Galatians. Say, listen... Keep your women in line in those services. And uh, he doesn't. It's all a part of the same kind of chaotic mess that was going on in the services at, at, uh, at the church in, in uh, Corinth. And so something about what the women were doing was violating the two principles that uh, Paul is laying down here. That's why he brings it up. Uh, this isn't decent and in order. Um, it is confusing, and it isn't uh, peaceful. So they're doing something that's creating confusion in the services. What we do know is that uh, what Paul isn't saying, and he isn't saying that women should never speak in terms of all use of human speech, that a woman is never to speak in church, because back in chapter 11, verse 5, He spoke very favorably of women praying in church, prophesying in church, with the simple caveat of just being uh, careful to the sensitivities of Corinth culturally uh, to wear a head covering when, when they did so. And so the women, they were doing something that was disrupting the service there in Corinth. And it appears that some of the women... Uh, And it isn't unlikely that in the early church it had some of the characteristics of the Jewish synagogue or um, other meetings where men would sit on one side of the hall and women would sit on the other side. The the sexes did not mix in a lot of uh, contexts in the ancient world. So it isn't unlikely that the men and women sat on opposite sides of the room and when something was being taught or in the course of the meeting, they would then call from one side of the room to their husband asking questions about what was being said. Hey, honey, then you believe that guy just said that? That's not what we believe. What do you think about that? Well, you can imagine. Hurt the confidence of the preacher. And... Uh, But it would get a little bit uh, chaotic related to things. And so calling over, asking questions, it disrupted the service. And this is why Paul wrote what he did in verse 35. If they want to learn something. So 
That's what's happening. It's not a thing of prophesying or praying, all forms of speech. Uh, it is this asking questions during the service in this way, interrupting the service. If they want to learn something, then uh, to ask their husbands at home. Home is a much more private, much more appropriate environment uh, to ask their questions and have them answered. And so Paul then closed his instruction And when he closes chapter 14 here, he's closing the entire section that he's been speaking on from chapters 12 through uh, 14 with kind of a final warning against pride in verses 36 through 38. He knew he was going to get a pushback. He knew there were going to be uh, people in the church at Corinth that felt they knew more about spiritual gifts and how they ought to operate in the church than the Apostle Paul did or the Holy Spirit did. So he's expecting some kind of a pushback from the church because there can be a lot of pride associated with spiritual gifts in the body of Christ, a lot of pride. And uh, people have very strong convictions and tough to move them from them. Sometimes even uh, when you can show them biblically why they do need to move from them. And Paul declared that the truly spiritual person would not rebel against his instruction here, but would acknowledge it to be of the Lord. But if a person refused, said, I'm not going to listen to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And uh, Paul says, all right, it's a sign that you're ignorant. And if you want to embrace your ignorance despite my best efforts to pull you away from it, then go ahead and be ignorant. We're not going to fight tooth and nail over this. And he closed the chapter by restating the main point uh, of the first part of uh, chapter 14. And I think it remains as searching a a passage today as ever 2,000 years ago. The two things... Let all things be done, that's so important, and then decently and in order. So when Christians come to church, they have a right to come into an environment that is respectful toward the Lord, to come into an environment that is edifying, to come into an environment where God is the star of the show, so to speak, and not people interrupting and making themselves the talk of the service. And the more pagan the culture becomes around us, the more important it's going to be for us as Christians for this environment to be that, to be solid, to be biblical, to be edifying, and to be a blessing to us. And then it's important for the services to be run in line with what Paul is saying here because when non-Christians come into our midst or seekers come into our midst, they don't aren't Christians yet, but they want to investigate it uh, a little bit. It's important to realize that when they come into a service, they leave... They are coming to conclusions about God based upon not just what's said in the service, but based upon how the service is conducted as well. And they're free to do that. 
And God wants them to, God wants to be represented well in their eyes, both by what is prayed, what is read from the Word, what is sung, what is taught from the Bible, to be something that allows them to say, okay, I can, I am coming to a conclusion about their God on the basis of that, but I also come to a conclusion about their God based upon how the services function, that this is a God who is creative, he's supernatural, he inhabits the praises of his people, but it is not to be chaos. He is obviously a God who is not only creative, but likes things to be done decently and in order. Sometimes we think we're just coming to church, you know, what does it matter? But everything matters, and a lot is at stake in terms of how a church service functions and how a church functions, uh, not only for the believer, but the unbeliever. Valuable instruction. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for all of this. Thank you that we can leave this place today as Christians and for the rest of our lives know what a church service is supposed to be like and what our part is in being used by you in a way that is in line with all of this. And Lord, we pray for Calvary Chapel of Modesto. And we certainly don't think we have arrived. And you know, Lord, we seek your face and we try to hear you. and We would do anything that you want us to do. And so we pray that you continue to speak to us as a church related to these things. Make this church what you know that it needs to be for Christians in this hour in human history, in this hour of trying to live for you, Lord, in the workplace and in the school and in a world that is becoming more and more hostile and bold in its hostility against Christians and the things of you growing on a daily basis. And so what is church supposed to be for your people, Lord? Speak to us about that. And then, Lord, what is it supposed to be for those who are trying to find another kingdom than the one that they're in, trying to find another life than the one that they're living, and wanting to come in and see something different, Lord, and to hear your voice and to be drawn into your kingdom. And so we pray for this church as members of this church that you would continue to speak to us in this area. Thank you for this instruction, the edification of it, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.